Well, kia ora koutou. I'm Bernard Hickey and with me in Bale. the club, clubhouse is Peter Bale. G'day Peter, how's it going? Very good, thank you Bernard. Good. Um, how are things down there? Excellent. I'm in a parliamentary uh, press gallery studio, a very good pad, padded cell. And you're in Auckland and um, we're old mates from long back, way back uh, with Reuters and the FT Market Watch Group and a whole bunch of other places. And basically this is a chance for us to... Um, look around the world at the things that we're interested in that we think New Zealanders should be interested in as well and no shortage of news around and also you do a roundup of global affairs for the spin-off which I do really yeah it's just a bit of a it's a world bulletin which is curated by me so it's it's my chance to not necessarily say necessarily say what's most important but what's interested me most this week yeah, in the last couple of weeks, it's been Gaza, um, obviously ceasefire right now. But tell us about the Iron Dome and how that's changed the political calculus in the Middle East. Well, there's a really interesting story this week, both on The Atlantic and in The Economist, written by the same person, although, of course, The Economist doesn't have bylines. Anshul Pfeffer is their reporter there, and he's done a very good piece, or very interesting piece for The Atlantic about the implications of the Iron Dome. I mean, the Iron Dome is this extraordinary um, system of... um, of anti-missile missiles, uh, and we've, you've probably seen there are links to it in my in my work. Absolutely extraordinary pictures of the Iron Dome uh, streaking across the sky to intercept the missiles being fired by Hamas. It, it captured something like, or defended Israel from something like 90% of the uh, Hamas missiles that were going towards populated areas. And you've got and to remember, people, it's um, it's hundreds of missiles at a time, right? They were trying to saturate and get through it, but they couldn't. That's absolutely right. That's a, and, and and of course, Iron Dome makes a calculation about where they're going to where they're going to go, and maximises the um, the the attack on the, or the the ability to to defend uh, against ones that are going for populated centres. And w- w- one of the points that that FIFA is making, um, based on a based on a book called The Weapon Wizards, is that. Um, uh, the Iron Dome is so effective that it gives, re- you know, we already know we're dealing with an asymmetric conflict here, but that the Iron Dome is so effective that it fits with the Netanyahu strategy of pretending to talk peace, but not really meaning anything about peace. You know, he's just there to, cont- this is all for him all about deterrence and containment, or at least it has been over the last six or seven years. And so there's a really good quote from this guy, Yaakov Katz, who wrote this book. On the one hand, Iron Dome is the perfect example of Israeli ingenuity and improvisation, but its very success is a reflection of Israel's biggest problem. Iron Dome allows you to almost ignore the fact that you have a neighbour just across the border with thousands of rockets pointed at you because they can no longer really harm you. Iron Dome allows, allows you not to find deeper solutions for that problem. And I think that's exactly the, the Netanyahu approach. So it will be... Extremely interesting to see whether anybody, uh, particularly Joe Biden, can force Netanyahu's hand at this time. And of course, we're at a very fluid stage (coughs) since we've had a fourth inconclusive election uh, in Israel. And Netanyahu has set himself up once again to be the defender of Israel. Yeah, moving on to Europe, where the big news this week was the forcing down of a Ryanair plane by Belarus. Um, This is extraordinary. Tell us about this. Well, yeah, it is. It is remarkable, and and it is. You know, it's been called by the by the Greeks as as state-sponsored terrorism and hijacking. Um, it it is kind of put put par for the. It's exactly what you would expect. Uh, Alexander Lukashenko, the the last dictator in Europe, the ruler of Belarus, to do, but he is really the nodding dog in the back of Vladimir Putin's car, and I think that that is. 
that is where this gets really interesting. Um, so, so Moscow this week has uh, stopped uh, Austrian Airlines and, and Air France from flying into Moscow because they had agreed not to fl not to fly over Belarusian airspace. But it, you know the the actual so it is. It is a Russia slash Belarus story. Belarus is more or less a, a province of Russia at the moment, and, and Putin has argued that it should be, but it, it actually more or less is already. Um, How might this escalate? Because I, I, I notice a lot of airlines have stopped flying over that area and Russia as, as well. Not that yeah. there's a lot of people fly, flying between Asia and Europe these days, but um, how could this go bad? Well, I, th I think the argument is that they're really going to have to, the, the Western Europe in particular, is really going to have to be aggressive on this. Um, and, and the trouble is it is going to spread to, uh, spread to Moscow uh, and, and involve Moscow as well. Um, I, I think the other aspect of this is that, you know, this is what you get when you call, call media people enemies of the people. You are giving license to the worst dictators in the world to attack, to attack journalists. And this is a, a young blogger, uh, Roman Protasevich, who was hauled off this plane. You know, the, 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 the bogus, the, Lukashenko has said that there was a, a Hamas threat uh, to, to down the aircraft. Of course, they didn't even check it for bombs. Uh, and also the threat that he published after saying that uh, was in fact uh, created uh, in email about, about a half an hour after the plane had been diverted. Um, handily, he also sent up a MiG, but it, typically, um, Lukashenko is also, you know, p creating himself as the or portraying himself as the victim in this. Um, there's also a classic bit of whataboutism. Um, those who, who who like to say, well, the West is this kind of thing, are pointing out that Evo Morales, the Ecuadorian uh, leader of the time, had his jet um, compelled to land, really because just because they denied flyover rights when it was flying from Moscow to Ecuador, and the suspicion was that it might have had uh, Edward Snowden on it. But it's really a very different case. You know, this is a civilian airliner with a couple of hundred people on board, 150 people on board, an A320 Ryanair aircraft. It's a huge, it's a huge thing, but it just shows how deeply Putin and Lukashenko are in each other's pocket. Well, also makes I think you, we know who's got the biggest pockets there. Yeah. It also makes you realise that this great era of globalisation we've been in, where it seemed you could fly anywhere, you could buy anything, you could trade with anyone, you could um, set up a factory anywhere, you could invest anywhere, and your technology could work anywhere, um, is sort of slowly breaking down. We're going into pseudo-trading blocks. We've got technology... Um, spheres developing, there's the Chinese internet, the European internet, the American internet and um, and of course with COVID um, putting up the borders as well, it just seems now the whole business of, you know, go, even flying overseas, you can't even go in a straight line anywhere and and now when you use your technology, you, you have to think about geopolitics a lot more you than do. you used to. You do. Well, it's very interesting. Um, Bill Browder, who, of course, has written a really excellent book about this. He's a, he's a Russian financier, who, or sorry, an American, a British-American financier who is Putin's number one enemy. He's the guy who created the Magnitsky Acts around the world. Um, he says he, 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 just, he never flies across, across anything uh, resembling Russian territory. Uh, and there's m many others like that. They already divert it. It was interesting also this week, the British... Uh, who, of course, in the city of London are um, very, very friendly to anybody who wants to uh, launder their ill-gotten gains through mm. the city, um, have said that they're going to be more careful about uh, Belarus. It's a little bit late for that, but that's, you know, Belarus is going to find it more difficult to do bond raisings in London. 
Now, back on that geopolitical um, tension aspect, um, China, China and New Zealand and the rest of the world, we had some really interesting comments in an interview that Nanaya Mahuta, the foreign minister, gave to The Guardian this week in which she talked about the risks for New Zealand exporters to China that they get caught up in the storm, which is the um, the problems many Australian exporters are having getting their material into China. We've seen with... Um, uh, let me turn that off. Uh, we've seen. Wait till Bernard. Oil. Yep. And Sorry, carry on. That's all right. We've seen. We just lost you for a second. Oh, no. um, we have seen uh, with uh, barley, wine, sugar, coal, wheat. Uh, Chinese uh, export um, officials have managed to block it at the border for all sorts of reasons. The big tariffs on wine, all because Australia actually called for the World Health Organization. Uh, inquiry into the origins of COVID, more, which we'll talk about more on later. And um, those exporters are really struggling. Now, New Zealand's managed to avoid being caught up in this noise so far. We've been much more cautious in our language around China. But e- even in the last year, things have changed a lot where Nanaya Mahuta and Jacinda Ardern, although not quite as aggressive from Ardern, have been um, criticising China on human rights, particularly its activities in Hong Kong, where this week um, it was confirmed that the Chinese um, security and um, democracy and in inverted commas law applied in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, um, the actions of the Chinese state in Xinjiang in the oppression of Uyghurs, which... Yeah, um, but of course, New Zealand, Bernard, New Zealand's been very cautious about not using the word genocide, of course, in official mm-hmm. documents to describe the Uyghur situation. I, I actually wonder whether you think, uh, as I do, that, that uh, Nanaya Mahuta has actually been extremely intelligent about this in setting out what New Zealand's concerns and objections are with China um, uh, very, very specifically, but also being very cautious about tying it to the Five Eyes. I mean, Australia has been slavishly following the United States, particularly under Donald Trump. Um, New Zealand has had a slightly more independent approach, but I think I wonder whether that's actually a more intelligent approach. Yeah, so we can we can criticise China, but we can't jump into the um, the boat directly with Australia and the United States. Um, up until the election, we were um, being part of the Five Eyes um, statements criticising China, but in the last couple of rounds, we've pulled out of that. Uh, uh, however, um, when you look closely at how both political parties in New Zealand are seeing China and how they're operating with China, uh, there has been a real shift. And one of the reasons for that is a lot of the uh, uh, briefings and advice that MPs and the government are getting from our intelligence communities about the way that China influences New Zealand politics. Mm. Now, the background here is that um, I was actually involved in uh, uh, running an investigation into the background of Jian Yang, the National List MP. It was a joint newsroom FT investigation with Jamila Indalini, who's actually a New Zealander who works for the FT uh, in Beijing. He was the Asia editor at that point. And we tracked down Jian Yang's background in China to a university which is renowned for training, um, frankly, Chinese Spi- spies. spies. That's yeah. right. He was he was he, he was teaching spies English, and then became a New Zealand a New Zealand List MP. And wasn't he also on the Foreign Affairs Committee? He was the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Exactly. So how does that happen? I mean, this is this because I think just 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 for everybody on the call, you know, the background here is that 
uh, a very small New Zealand website called Politic has done an excellent expose this week that not only he, not only he, but an equivalent uh, Labour MP of Chinese origin, Raymond um, Twell. Mm. Yeah, that they agreed to leave Parliament in a secret deal between the two two leading political parties in New Zealand. Yeah, and it's a it's a sign of how things happen in New Zealand. We we don't like coming out and shouting in public that we're really angry with someone. We tend to do things a bit behind the scene. There's a, there's a passive-aggressive streak in New mm. Zealand's um, public life, and this is a classic case. And, of course, everyone's um, not confirming or denying it, but um, there's been briefings given, and we've seen Radio New Zealand, the New Zealand Herald, and, of course, the original report from Politic um, confirmed that there were these deals done between the chiefs of staff of the Labour Party in Parliament and yep. the National Party. Uh, this was before the 2020 election. I can recall at the time being absolutely stunned that uh, Jan Yang and Raymond Huo were still on their party lists with just a few weeks to go before the election. Yeah. And when we get these announcements... Um, Rather curious ones about deciding not to stand in the election. Just yeah, spend wait. more time with their families. Yeah. Yes, it was all very um, strange. Um, of course, tied up in the middle of a COVID pandemic and the election, it didn't get a lot of attention. But it's great that um, Richard Harmon has has now uh, ferreted out what actually went on, and it just shows you that um, essentially. Uh, the accusation or the um, concern from our security partners in the Five Eyes and um, the likes of Australia was that um, we had two MPs who were remarkably well connected with the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government. Um, yeah. No one's saying anything more than that at this stage, but uh, clearly um, that's not what you want. If you can imagine, just put it, put yourself in the shoes of the New Zealand government back in the 70s and 80s to find that if that a trainer of KGB spies was the, was the head of your Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Um, and that's the way we should actually think about um, China now. It's not Absolutely. quite full-on Cold War, but it is something that uh, the, the idea of cooperation and engagement is over. Um, an interesting comment from a senior US official this week that that era of engagement with China is over and now it's seen as an era of what they call strategic competition, which is another word for... Yeah, well, Bernard, I think also there's been a very good New Zealand academic in Christchurch, Anne-Marie Brady, who, yeah. in my opinion, has been extraordinarily brave. I mean, she's talked about her being attacked online. She's talked about her car being interfered with. You know, she has argued that there is provable or large evidence of... Um, malign Chinese influence through the Chinese community, through the Chinese expatriate community in New Zealand, through the media, through Chinese uh, Chinese language media, and through people like this. I mean, t tell us a little bit about her. You know her better than I do. Yeah, Anne-Marie Brady is um, one of those rare academics in New Zealand um, who puts her head above the parapet and writes uh, and does research, which is well-respected in the, um, the community that watches uh, Chinese politics from outside China are very closely and um, she has identified the operations of uh, China's um, uh, National Front or its United uh, United Front uh, operations in various countries and has identified um, how the Chinese state operates to influence politics and, uh, and commerce in uh, countries in its sphere. And she's been criticised a lot, not just by China, of course, and the local embassy here, 
and by those who are closely aligned with trade and investment with China, but also by the academic community. Mm. There was a real push inside Canterbury University to get it turfed out. And uh, luckily that seems to have died down a bit now. Uh, but you know, we can be grateful in New Zealand that we still have a few uh, pu- public intellectuals who are willing to take the role of the you know um, the public conscience that uh, a good university should have to frankly yeah, call I bullshit on stuff. She's been she's been very courageous. I think also it's not really good enough of the government to say that they're not going to talk about these two MPs going because they supposedly never talk about security matters. This is a really serious story. Um, at the same time, and thinking about what you were saying before about the foreign minister Nanaia Mahuta, it seems to me that New Zealand has to have a positive. Um, uh, attitude to engagement with China while calling out all these issues it has to, it has to have a positive relationship with Beijing yeah and it's it's uh, it's clear now that um, China is by a large shot our largest trading partner um, not just for goods but for services Australia um, used to be our largest trading partner and that's largely because of tourism uh, and other services back and forth between Australia but of course the tourism's dried up a bit and um, China really has stepped up and taken a lot of our exports we've got record high prices for milk uh, meat, uh, logs, fish, and that's in large part because of China's buying it. Now, up until now, we haven't been punished, unlike the Australians, uh, but we are slightly vulnerable there, and that's why Nanaya Mahuta came out this week and said, you know, just be ready that there could be a storm and you need to diversify. And that's been the message quietly behind the scenes for a couple of months now from our um, trade officials and ministers in the cabinet to senior people in New Zealand business and particularly the export community that mm. you know things could get rough with China and make sure you've got a few other irons in the fire elsewhere to shift stuff but, around. But I think diplomatically and in this part of the world New Zealand has to engage with China it can't just sort of turn its back on it or join it join the kind of um, US-led alliance that, that, that Trump was pushing so strongly. Yeah, and um, so far we've managed to um, be friends with everyone uh, and still be independent. Uh, luckily, we haven't have had to choose one side or the other. Um, Yet. But, yeah. you know, the longer it goes on, you know, just a couple of weeks ago in Australia, the, the minister, um, Peter Dutton, and some senior officials were actually talking about... W- whether and how Australia could go to war against China yes. to defend Taiwan and in the South China Sea. I mean, this is extraordinary stuff, and it was all hosed down very quickly. But, you know, this is something we have to keep an eye on, and uh, particularly because we're in a unique position now where uh, we are in, you know, strategic competition or conflict, depending on how you look at it, against our largest trading partner. This would be like... Um, you know, in the 50s and 60s, deciding that we... Against thought, some of our most important allies. You're thinking about Australia in that case, of yeah, course. Yeah, and, and Britain. Mm. You know, Br- Britain was buying as yeah. much stuff as China does now, um, certainly in the 60s and 70s. It was much higher in the um, 50s and 60s, but it's one of our great achievements, actually, over the last 50 years is, tri- is diversifying. Is diversification, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and, the and other, Bernard, one of the other big issues this week you wanted to talk about, I'm sorry, did, it was, yep. um, was the oil companies. Yeah, yeah, this is... Big set, setbacks for yeah. Shell, Chevron and Exxon. Uh, Shell in the Netherlands in a big court case 
and Exxon in a really interesting case where, where a sort of small active, activist investor is um, kind of undermining its attempts to ignore climate change to some extent. That's, that's right. I mean, this is quite a thing in the battle, if you like, between climate change activists and, and the global multinational capitalist world led by big oil. Now, what's been going on here is that because the politicians in the various countries haven't been able to get their act together and implement the Paris Climate Change Agreement and force, you know, bigger taxes or um, new regulations on these uh, big emitters, what's happened is the activists have been clever and gone round the back and gone to the regulators, the pension funds, um, banks and said, hey, uh, this is not just a risk to the environment, this is a financial risk. And you, as the manager of someone else's funds, need to take a fiduciary approach, i.e. to be cautious about how you use your money, knowing that these are orphan assets, these oil wells Mm. and various other things, that actually uh, are going to create liabilities for you as an investor over over the years. And for... Uh, financial regulators, they are now seeing that um, banks that lend to the to big oil for these sorts of investments are at risk of being caught up in a massive downgrade in the value of these assets. So what you're seeing, and uh, central banks are getting together quite aggressively on this, and the Reserve Bank here has been doing it, along with the European Central Bank and the US Federal Reserve, going to banks, and remember they have ultimate power in regulating these banks um, without a a license to, to print money, which is the truth mm. of it. Uh, these banks don't exist without the support of the central banks. And they are now using that power to say, uh, unless you um, disassociate yourself from big oil, from these companies, um, we're not going to uh, um, uh, support you. And in fact, we're going to increase your capital requirements if yeah. you're lending to these companies. And then they've gone to the big pension funds, particularly the sovereign wealth funds and the New Zealand super fund as part of a trillion dollar plus group of uh, pension funds that are actively looking to pull their money out of companies that are not reducing their emissions, essentially arguing let's only invest in things that are looking to have uh, net zero emissions by, in many cases, 2030. And that's what we've seen this week. And then you've got the courts as well, people using human rights law and various environmental laws in various places. Uh, Shell was the main loser this week where a um, Dutch court um, uh, agreed with some climate change activists who argued that Shell was in breach of human rights law by not reducing its emissions. And Shell was... Yeah, well, it's it's the first... I think it's the first corporation to be prosecuted under effectively the the Paris Agreement guidelines. Yeah, and uh, of course in Europe where a lot of these laws apply across across the entire continent, uh, this really is a, a problem for these global companies. And uh, for anyone who wants some um, entertaining um, political economy thriller uh, uh, Netflix action, um, Occupied is a really good example of um, how to think about climate change as a political thriller. <laughs> and, yeah, which, uh, and, oh, well, so, so let me tell you what the plot of that is, if anybody, which is, it's, it's about Russia invading Norway to get, its, to get its oil. But I mean, one of the ironic aspects of all of this, of course, Bernard, is that uh, Norway has one of the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world, and it is divesting itself of oil, <laughs> of oil assets, just as, um, you know, Statoil is going after the last drop of Norwegian oil. So That's right. I, I'm, I'm a little bit cynical about all this, actually, particularly having watched through that era when... Uh, 
when BP in the UK tried to go oh, for yeah. that Beyond Petroleum push, oh. which, which of course became Beyond Parody. <laughs> That's right, and they had that amazing logo with the you know the the green sun and all of that stuff. You're right. There's a lot of greenwash going on here, but I actually think the regulatory and financial and pension fund approach may actually have a lot more success than all of the the, the chat shops. You know, the, the climate accord get-togethers in Paris and various places. There's a new. There's going to be one in. Is it Edinburgh? And Britain, uh, uh, Glasgow, Glasgow, Glasgow climate conference later this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah, um, I think I think you're right. But then I look I look also, Bernard, at the you know, I, there was a story in the Guardian today that there are more people smoking today than at any time in history. So you wonder why BAT, you know, British American Tobacco and others are still doing very well, and the Japanese company that's in that area. You know, there's a, there's a there's demand out there, and these oil companies are going to meet it. And I just I, I'm more skeptical than you about this. Yeah, um, I'm. I agree it's going to take a while, but you might be surprised on this, particularly around the regulation and the banking. But um, moving on, um, and, and just to, on the climate change front, watch out uh, on Sunday for the Climate Commission's uh, big report due out its recommendations to the government on how to get to net zero by 2050. That will put the government on the spot, and uh, we'll get to see whether... Uh, uh, the climate emergency announcement from the Prime Minister last year was a real real thing. But um, for a bit of light relief, well, actually, it's really serious. But, uh, boy, it was a popcorn moment a couple of nights ago for anyone watching the British um, Parliamentary Select Committee system where Dominic Cummings um, rocked up. Now, tell us about Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson, Peter, because you actually... Uh, Worked in the British Parliamentary yeah, Press Gallery a long time and, ago, and yeah. know Boris Johnson when he was a reporter for the Telegraph. I, I, I did, yeah, and he was a nutter then as well. Um, <laughs> Max and, Hastings, and a has a, Max Hastings, who was his editor, has some very pungent things to say about Boris. Yeah, yeah, he was a bullshitter, and uh, you know the, all of the sort of bent, you know, the EU, EU, EU uh, banana rules and the various other things that he invented were bogus but effective. And of course, now he is the prime minister, and he wouldn't be the prime minister had uh, w- without Dominic Cummings having run both the last election cam- mm-hmm. campaign, but more importantly, the Brexit campaign. And Dominic is a kind of uh, arsehole's arsehole, really, Bernard. He is a uh, respectable figure. Yeah, he's a weird kind of Anne Rand, Anne Rand reading um, character straight out of a, a, a Armando Iannucci's um, <laughs> very, very good comedy drama about UK politics called The Thick of It. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was a really excellent piece of this just ahead of his evidence, which said that one of, the, one of his favourite tactics in, in his uh, last days in, um, in Downing Street was to pretend to pull the gun from an, uh, pull, pull the pin rather, from an imaginary hand grenade and throw the grenade over his shoulder, and, you know, and 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 it's just he's pathetic actually, and his evidence was extremely damaging or would be extremely damaging in any environment where the truth still mattered. And unfortunately, the UK is a place where the truth no longer matters, partly because people like Dominic have completely undermined facts and truth with the Brexit campaign and so that's, on. That's the irony but, of it. He he's, he went out in public thinking he could um, really slam. Um, uh, Boris, but he's so muddied the waters of um, political uh, theatre and communication that um, you know he just comes off as crying wolf. That's right, he does, and uh, and of course there is important stuff. He gave seven hours of unbelievably self-justifying testimony. <laughs> 
um, and which he, you know, he rolled his eyes, he pulled at his shirt, he gave ridiculous hand gestures, and he certainly communicated to the uh, select committee that he despised them as well. Um, one of the best quotes that came out of it, though, was a quote from the, from the head of the Downing Street uh, uh, civil service operation who went into Boris Johnson's uh, uh, office during in, in early March and said, quotes, I think we're absolutely fucked. I think we're going to kill thousands of people. And it turns out, of course, they did tell, kill, kill thousands of people. The um, British death rate from, uh, from COVID is about 170,000 excess deaths uh, over the past year. And a uh, modeler from Imperial University, Imperial College University, um, this morning um, confirmed that he ex felt between 20 and 30,000 uh, old people had probably died in uh, rest homes alone because the, and this was probably the most serious specific allegation um, Dominic Cummings made, was that the uh, people, people, old people in hospitals were forced, compelled to go back into rest homes and they spread COVID and many of them died. 20,000 uh, people died in these rest homes. Yeah, so, I mean, that's the know, thing. It's, it had real world impacts. And thank the, you know, the gods or whoever's in charge that uh, in New Zealand, we didn't wait that week or two that the Brits waited because... Um, yeah, this is the other, this is the thing about this, Bernard, that we all could see it at that time. The Imperial College study, which showed just how many... So one of the essential aspects of Dominic Cummings' evidence is the uh, mulling that the British government did um, at the beginning of March about the possibility of letting it rip and trying to create a system of herd immunity, not dissimilar to what um, Sweden did in the, in the end. And that two weeks of hesitation is what caused... You know the crisis in Britain really, and and that's that's very well well evidenced now. But the imperial analysis, which showed just how damaging that was going to be, which I think was half a million deaths in the UK and a million deaths in the United States, was what convinced uh, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand mm -hmm. to act more quickly. It con convinced even Donald Trump to change tack, and it certainly convinced Boris Johnson. I mean, his one of his arguments in this is that um, in a time of chaos, people will at least look to him as the prime minister to solve the chaos. It's awful. He, he, he compared he compared himself apparently to the to the mayor of Amity in Jaws and said he should have been the one to keep the keep the uh, keep the beaches Beach open, open, which oh, didn't no. didn't work well in Jaws either. No. And uh, Dominic Cummings described uh, Johnson as a bit like a shopping trolley, you know, um, bouncing back and forth between the walls. Um, just awful. And the scary thing is that if there was an election held tomorrow, he would get right back in. Absolutely, he would. Yeah. No. This is this this. His, his um, incompetence is priced in already. <laughs> now, uh, talking about um, the political culture and the commercial culture action, actually in Britain, Max Mosley <laughs> died this week in terms of uh, you know, big milestones. Tell us about, for well, those people who don't it, know it, Max Mosley, what he was yeah, about. Yeah, it is a bit of a milestone because you know, there's, we're all fascinated with the class system in England and the, and the class system is deeply entrenched, although he's, in a, in a sense, the sort of one of the last of a particular breed. I mean, he was the son of Sir Oswald Mo Mosley, who was a wartime fascist, uh, who was interned along with his wife, uh, Diana Mitford, one of the Mitford sisters. And it, let me give you a sense of... Um, of the kind of life that they led, that the, the Mosleys, that Mosley led. Aside from their involvement in British fascism, fascism the Mosleys had been married in Joseph Goebbels' drawing room in Berlin in 1936, <sighs> after which their special guest, Adolf Hitler, had presented the newlyweds with a framed photograph of himself. 
And when when uh, Max was a was was a boy, his parents, who were of course you know somewhat um, somewhat beyond the pale in the UK, went sailing around Europe. After the war, the Mosleys spent their time moving around Europe, cruising the Mediterranean on the family yacht, or visiting Sir Oswald's Spanish friend, General Francisco Franco. So Max had a very strange upbringing, and he did have you know pretty right wing tendencies himself. He stood for his father's party. Um, but I think he moved away from that a little, although he held some pretty extraordinary views about South Africa, uh, about immigration, and you know about uh, about the different races. But one of the things that Max is very well known for was he became chairman of the of the FIA, the, for, the uh, International Automotive uh, Organization based in Paris, which which along with Bernie Eccleston used to run Formula One, and he and Bernie were a, a kind of duo that really created the modern circus of Formula One. But where I got to know Max was in this quite extraordinary campaign that he took against press invasion. He had, a, he had, and I didn't know him about this, he had some very, what, very interesting sexual picadillos where he'd, for 45 years he'd been paying women to uh, beat him uh, in, a sado, in sadomasochistic or, orgies. Unfortunately, the news of the world set one of these up for him and, and set him up in the story and made this really stupid extra allegation that there was a Nazi theme, thus drawing a line between his fascist father and himself. Mm. Now, Max made no, had no shame about having had those uh, sadomasochistic um, orgies, but he regarded them as private business. He was very upset to have to tell his wife that he'd been having them for the last 40 years. But he won in court against the news of the world on the whole Nazi claim, oh, and that really set... It's always, really it's always, the the, ball it's, it's never the main claim. It's always the little detail on the side that gets you. That's right. It was completely unnecessary to go. Well, actually, I, I suspect that if if they if the news of the world hadn't been able to concoct the Nazi thing, they may well have run the story in the first place because of privacy. But there is no privacy legislation at that time, or there was none. But it really led to this whole. Uh, campaign to the Leveson inquiry into into press regulation in the UK and the whole uh, business around phone hacking and and Max was very very central to that. Um, he was a very dignified and interesting guy despite all of this sadomasochism and so, so on. I so don't hold that against him. So you're a close observer and a participant in the um, the British media scene, having um, lived there for the last couple of decades and been an, an editor of the Times's online operation CNBC, sorry CNN Europe. Tell mm -hmm. me Peter do, do you think this um, Leveson inquiry push the various campaigns to clean up um, British tabloid culture has actually made a difference? No, not at all because the, the you know, Max, Max funded a, uh, one regulator which was in line with what Leveson had recommended. Nobody in the nobody in the mainstream media would join that, so they set up their own. Uh, and of course, David Cameron, who owed uh, a favour to Rupert Murdoch and the others, canned the second phase, what was supposed to be the second phase of the Leveson inquiry, which would have looked even deeper into the press conduct, particularly the press conduct with the police, who had a remarkable revolving door between, particularly between uh, News International, uh, which is Rupert Murdoch's operation, and the Met Police. It was a, it's a, it's a very circular operation. Murdoch. It always comes back to Murdoch on the end, and the old bugger is still, um, you know, pounding away there from New York. Um, that will be the obituary when when he cacks it, um, and. 
then uh, all hell is um, unleashed. Maybe um, for those people who are a big fan of what's the what's that series on 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 uh, Succession? Succession. Yeah. I've got a, I've got that on my list of things to to look at. Yeah, that's um, very good. Yeah. Hey, we're at the um, the well past the thirty minute mark. Um, Peter, that was a great lap around the tra- traps uh, today. I really enjoyed it. Sure. And, and I, and John, shall, shall we see if there's any questions from the people yeah. on Clubhouse at the moment? Yeah, yeah. Let's, Brian, let's Josh, Tim, Jonathan, do you want to come in on anything, please? It's good, if you, good to see you again, Jonathan yeah, and Tim. Yeah, thank you. So um, they put up their hands and then I'll let, can we let, let them in. All yep. oh, right. I'm just wondering how I do that. That's the question. I think, yeah, I think I can do it too. Oh, good. Can I let you do it? Because I've got a feeling oh, you're yep. the Clubhouse expert. <laughs> All right. Anybody else? Josh, Brian, would you like to come in at all? Got anything to say? So we've got Jonathan. Here we go. Has something to say? Invite a speaker. Here we go. Uh, Josh Cowell. Hi, Josh. Josh. Hi, Bernard and Peter. Lovely to, lovely to be here. Thank you for coming in. Great. Well, thanks for today. This is um, a fascinating conversation. Is this, uh, is this going to be podcasted? Yes, it will. Yes. Um, I'll, we're recording this and we will put it out um, through the Kaka. Um, just join up as a subscriber to the Kaka and you'll get it sent. So if you don't, you know, if you've got things to do on a Friday afternoon and you want to listen to it other, another way, we're planning to do it every week, and um, uh, and you, it'll it's available on the various uh, podcast platforms. But just sign up to. Um, uh, thekaka.substack.com and uh, oh, follow me on Twitter and um, uh, you can sign up there and it'll, it'll, it'll go out. So yeah, no, we're hoping and please do, you know, fire us your um, points of interest requests in the comments below um, the item that goes out with it and uh, yeah, no, welcome questions and a huge audience. Yeah, and just to be clear, we, we have recorded this session today and, and are putting it out as, as part of the podcast. Brilliant. Well, I really appreciated, uh, particularly your uh, perspective on uh, China and the uh, that delicate issue around how Australia and New Zealand navigates uh, trade and 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 that kind of stuff. It's uh, yeah, it's well worth listening to. Thank you. Yeah, it'll be really interesting if, New, from my point of view, if New Zealand could be a bit of a bit of a go-between in that area. Actually, yeah, there has actually been suggestions that Nanaia Mahuta may be. Um, an intermediary between China and the United States on trade in particular. the uh, What we used to call the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it's now called the CPTPPA, I think, the Comprehensive Tr- and Transparent, lovely mm-hmm. <laughs> Pacific Partnership. Uh, remember, that America under Trump pulled out of the TPP, w- went ahead anyway. Um, well, China has actually quietly behind the scenes been asking to join it. And um, we, New Zealand, is the keeper of the document of the TPP. So we're in a position to say, yeah, let's have a listen to what China says. Now, of course, the whole point of TPP, when Obama set it up or agreed to be part of it, was that um, it would essentially be a uh, a trade a agreement to, to yeah. sort of lock China out. Now, if China was to join the TPP that, and America wasn't already in it, that would be slightly embarrassing. And so th- there is some leverage for New Zealand there over the Americans, maybe um, at least to get America to do a free trade deal with New Zealand. And it's quite possible we could have a free trade deal with Britain and a free trade deal with Europe and one with America and one with China because we're already in, under the wire. 
um, uh, if we can um, be an intermediary. So, you know, um, things aren't looking great in terms of globalisation, but New Zealand has managed by tiptoeing between the elephants um, to find a way to do deals with everyone. And that would be the, the ultimate brilliant outcome if, if um, either we could uh, get America to join the TPP um, or even, you know, be an intermediary in, in bringing China yeah. and America, or at least cooling things down a bit. The mouse that roared. Yes. So anyone else who wants a question? And we very much welcome you all back next, next week at quarter past three. Cool. I think, hopefully, all right. I've got everyone. Hey, uh, Peter, ka kite anō. Have a great weekend. And to everyone, um, uh, come on back, 3.15 next week, where we will um, do New Zealand's uh, Over the Horizon. Um, I'm yep, Bernard we'll Hickey. experimenting. And, Sorry, go and, ahead. And he was Peter Bale. <laughs> All right. Good, Thanks very good much, Bernard. Thanks, everybody. Good stuff. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.